0: Please be seated, everybody. Thanks for being here to hear a word from the Lord on this Labor Day weekend. Uh, pretty, pretty decent crowd for Labor Day weekend. I was expecting worse. So thank you for being here. Um, last week in our series, Church on Mission, we studied the leadership of the Holy Spirit, bringing our mission team to Philippi, and there they met a woman named what? You were here. Good. And Luke, the author of Acts, artfully follows the story of Lydia with another story, Another, I think, intentional contrast. For the girl that we study today begins not in freedom like Lydia, but rather in bondage. We find her at the same river where we met Lydia, but rather than living in freedom, she was in bondage to cruel men who were enslaving her, as well as a demonic influence oppressing her. So we're going to read that story today as our text. I want to begin this morning with a true story to illustrate what I think is going to be a theme today. Yellowstone National Park rangers were not happy in the ecosystem of their park in the early 1990s. They thought it could be better. They felt things were not in the balance that they wanted it to be in the park. There was too many deer and elk, which caused overforaging, which um, took away too much of the leafy vegetation, which allowed water to flow in places they didn't want it to flow to. And rivers were all over the place, and so they hatched a plan to introduce a new species to the park uh, that had been absent for quite some time. Anybody know what that was? You guys read or something? Yeah, that's exactly right. Wolves. That's right. Uh, gray wolves. So more than thirty gray wolves were added to Yellowstone in 1995, and they were amazed at how one action could influence an entire ecosystem. There's a lot about this on the internet. Uh, Apparently, you've already read it, so I won't tell you to read it. But they noticed that the presence of the wolves caused uh, the elk and deer to behave differently, as you would if you were an elk or a deer. Uh, They foraged less. They lived more on alert. They traveled to different parts of the park. Uh, Thus, certain grasses grew differently in different areas, Uh, and this, in turn, caused rivers to actually go in different directions. It changed the entire uh, ecosystem of the park. Overall, it was a success story that introducing wolves made Yellowstone more healthy in their ecosystem. Well, years later in Colorado... Around 2019, there was a movement of people who had seen the Yellowstone research and wanted to bring to the voters a proposition to reintroduce wolves to Colorado. It was simple to them. Look at all the benefits of Yellowstone. It worked there. It will work here. However, when citizens started to ask practical questions, some reality started to set in, such as, isn't it kind of a different set of considerations to have wolves in a national park versus a growing populated state where millions of people live? That was number one. Number two, farmers began to ask, what happens when the wolves massacre my cows? That was another one. Campers and hikers began to ask questions about what if we're out on a hike and we see a pack of wolves surrounding us? Uh, you know, bears are, are lone predators. If you see a bear, you really only have to worry about the one bear, but wolves will chase us for miles in pack formation. People with pets in mountain towns asked about the likelihoods of their dogs and and cats and themselves being taken by these wolves that lived in the mountains. And so essentially, the answer to their question was, yeah, that's probably all going to (laughs) happen. That's all part of the consequences. That's the collateral damage. So, Vote accordingly, what this came down to, I think, and actually, we lived there for the very last year of this. Uh, I remember some of the campaigning going on. What this came down to was that people like the idea of wolves when it 's somewhere far away, and it doesn 't affect their daily lives. But in real lives, wolves uh, in real life, wolves are dangerous, not to be taken lightly. they change things, and ultimately the, the vote was extremely close and bitterly contested. Mostly, it was those who lived in the big cities who voted in favor of having the wolves released, and those who actually had to deal with the consequences and lived in the country voted no, but the vote went in favor of releasing the wolves. Uh, So, it's been a difficult uh, rollout of this plan. They haven't been able to do it. There's been so much controversy, but they say late this year in 2023 is when the wolves are going to be released. Here's what I want to show you in the book of Acts today. Everybody is fine with Christianity until it starts to shake things up. Everybody loves the idea of Jesus until he challenges your concepts of right and wrong. Wolves are cool as long as they don't live in my backyard. We're going to see today that Paul not only brings the gospel to Philippi, but the application of the gospel to Philippi. And as it turns out, with the Gentiles, it's not the message that they get upset with, but the application of that message to their daily lives. So before we look to this text, let's pray one more time. Lord, we ask you would use this moment in our lives, Lord, to shake us up, to show us where we need repentance, where we fail you, Lord. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Give us boldness where we need boldness. God, that this would be a moment of teaching and edification for your people today. Use your word in a mighty way in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll look at our text, Acts 16, 16. If you want to turn there, 1616. 16. This is a connector piece story flowing from the Lydia narrative because it's in the same location. We're back at the river. Uh, But at the same time, it's a setup to what's coming next week, and it's going to tell you why Paul and Silas are in jail in the first place. We learn that today. So Acts 16, 16 says this. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw, their hope of gain was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. and fastened their feet in the stocks. Pretty wild story, right? So it starts out with so much hope, but it ends in prison stocks. So as we break down the story, I want to keep the greater gospel story before our mind. There are parallels to what Christ has done for us in what we see in this story. So we're going to see three things that Christ offers that are also happening in this story. Number one, we're going to see that Christ offers freedom to the oppressed. Freedom to the oppressed. First, let's look at this girl. Wandering the banks of the river in Philippi was a, quote, slave girl. That phrase is even hard to say. It feels uncomfortable to even think about what that would be. The Greek word chosen by Luke to describe her is padiske, which is how we know this is a uh, child and not an adult woman. Um, Paideia, not paideia, but paideia is the word for child in the scripture. So this is a young girl who has been made a slave. And another description that about her uh, quality here is that she has been given a spirit of divination, Now, the Greek behind that, also very interesting. It is literally pneuma puthon, which means python spirit. That might sound made up to you, uh, but listen to the accuracy of Luke, the author. There was a famous pagan temple called the Oracle of Delphi in which people at the time would go to get oracles from this temple, prophecies, blessings. uh, And so it was a, a, a lewd place where lots of pagan things happened. It was said that the god Apollo uh, rendered these predictions through the prophets of the temple, and the symbols that were in that temple were often the python. Thus, this oracle-giving pagan practice of divination took on a nickname called the python spirit, and it's really cool that Luke got that, that he included that for us. So this young girl, sadly, was under demonic spiritual elements where she was able to, in reality or in perception uh, give fortune tellings. Now, in all likelihood, I think this was not a scam, Uh, that that there was some ability from this demonic spirit to do this and to run this business and to actually give enough fortune telling to people to where they would come back and come back. Uh, There were owners involved, we should really probably say oppressors or maybe even traffickers, honestly, who essentially used her as a money-making enterprise. It was, as bad as it sounds, it was basically step right up, come on down, this little girl will give your fortune for a price. So not only was the girl possessed by some demonic spirit, traumatic enough, but she was being used as a slave. Not only was she dealing with the effects of possession and intense spiritual warfare day and night, but she was made to perform by those who would use her as long as. As they could. Now, when the girl enters the scene of Paul and Silas, the owners don't seem to be present for this moment. It reads as if the slave girl is following Paul and Silas around as they're trying to preach the gospel near the river. So, initially, Paul and Silas are not even really focused on this girl. They're they're trying to preach to a crowd that has gathered at the same river where they met Lydia. And perhaps this demon who was possessing the girl was provoked uh, by. The presence of the gospel, the name of Jesus being proclaimed in this new place that was formerly under pagan influence. So the demon possessed girl follows them and shouts at them for days on end as they're trying to witness and make disciples. And we know it's the demon that's shouting. The little girl is essentially a vessel in this story. And what I find interesting is the demon actually shouts out true things when you read what it says. Look at what the demon shouts at the girl. These men are servants of the Most High God. They proclaim to you the way of salvation. I mean, that's better than the preaching you hear on TBN. That's not that bad. Uh, Paul and Silas do serve God. They do proclaim the way of salvation. So this is a reminder to us, sometimes demons can say true things in small doses. Satan always comes disguised as an angel of light. The father of lies can tell the truth if he wants to. And it can be layered and nuanced and weighted with ill intent. So let me just say, since the opportunity is here, I've got a lot of opportunities in this sermon today. Be very careful not to ever seek or wade into the demonic or the occult, not to even just get in there for morbid curiosity. Stay away from the Ouija board and trying to hear voices from the dead and see the future. It's really not a joke. When you get into it, it's a very ugly world that you may not understand what you're getting into. Uh, I, I find it very possible that this girl was actually giving fortune teller, tellings for, that were true, but it came at a great cost to her. So you might be promised, hey, look at all the wonderful things you can do if you get into this world, but it will come at a cost. As we think of the condition of the slave girl, the fact that she was being taken advantage of by both Satan and evil men, I want to mention two quick practical lessons that are both at play here. First is about money. These men were making money, hand over fist, using this girl to harness evil. So let me say something, and it's for everybody, but I'm targeting our young people over here. You can make a lot of money in this life by ill-gotten gains. One day you'll learn you can make an awful lot of money in this world by doing shameful things. You can steal. You can scam. You can defraud. You can do shoddy work and cut corners. You can sell illicit photos of yourself on the internet. You can sell drugs and alcohol to addicts. You can sell your body. You can wager your life savings on gambling. You can get into Ponzi schemes and pressure your friends to buy from you. There's no shortage of ways You can make money in this life, shamefully. But the point is that financial success doesn't always equate to success in God's eyes. Did God look down from heaven at these men and this slave girl and say, hey, you got to at least give them credit for hustling, right? I mean, look at that work ethic. Look at that business model. Rise and shine, hustle and grind, am I right? No, God doesn't say that. Financial winning is not always an indicator of God's blessing because it's possible to earn money by shameful and sinful means However, I want to be careful is at the same time that I say that in truth Not to just take a simplistic route and say Money is the enemy Let's think about last week. What did we learn last week? Lydia had money Probably lots of it from selling purple fabrics. She made lots of money but was it shameful in the way that she earned it? Should she be made to feel bad for the money that she earned by selling a legitimate product? No. And after she met Jesus, she gave a lot of that money away and opened up her nice home for the missionaries to stay and had a house church meet in her nice home, and she sent money to Paul all over the world for preaching. So what's the lesson? Money just reveals more of who we already were. If you weren't generous when you were broke, you won't be generous when you have money. That's money lesson number one. Second lesson I want to show you is a sin lesson, a sin lesson. Seeing this girl in the story used and abused reminds me of a truth that we often forget. Sin in your life does not care about you or what happens to you. You are a means to an end to Satan. Let me give you a crass example that you won't forget. To Satan, you were a lot like a Kleenex tissue. A tissue has a lot of value before it's used. But only after one use, it's lost its value, and it becomes disgusting, and you want to throw it away. Satan makes all the promises in the world and makes you feel valued to get you in the door. But once he's had you, you're cast aside and made to feel like a dirty tissue. The way of sin is like getting catfished on the Internet. Y'all know what being catfished is? It's when her pictures don't look like her. The way of sin is like getting catfished on the internet. In the picture, she's a perfect 10, an athlete, a model, a Rhodes Scholar. She always loves your favorite bands and restaurants and sports teams. But when you meet her in person, she's your worst nightmare with bad breath and she won't go home. That's the false promise that Satan makes. Sin makes all the promises of freedom but delivers bondage in its place. Sin will tell you that God is the one keeping fun experiences from you, that the church is full of judgmental people that hate you, and that you should just dip your toe in the world's water a little bit to experience real freedom, and maybe you'll find yourself. But years later, when you've gone too far down a dark path that you can't get back from, that encouraging voice of Satan isn't there. He's there to condemn you, to kick you when you're down, and tell you what a loser you are. He promises freedom, but he delivers only bondage. But praise God, Jesus promises freedom and delivers freedom. He promises rest and delivers rest. He promises living water and delivers living water. There is no bait and switch with Jesus Christ. He has set us free from the bondage of our sin. By faith in Christ crucified, resurrected, and returning, we receive a new nature. We get the Holy Spirit who enables us to actually wage war on our sin rather than submitting to it. So trust the voice of the good shepherd to lead you to green pastures, not the voice of the fox in the hen house. After a few days of this demon harassing Paul and Silas interrupting gospel preaching. Paul becomes angry, annoyed at the constant distraction of the chatter. Verse 18 says, He looks at the slave girl and says to the spirit in her, I command you by the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it says, It came out that very hour. Just like that. Freed from the dark master. This girl was freed by the power of Christ through the hands of of Paul the Apostle. Demons are no match for Jesus Christ. And instantly, this girl was restored because she was freed from the demonic. She was now unable to continue in her role as a demonically-inspired fortune teller. The power was gone. The python spirit had been given the squeeze. You might think there would be celebration the one was in bondage is now free. You might think the town would throw a parade. But no, sinners often do not celebrate when one leaves the misery of their company. Her masters would not do so. But I'm sure the little girl was glad to be freed, even if they weren't, even if her friends weren't, even if her captors weren't. That's what we want to focus upon next, the fallout of this act of casting out the demons. So we've seen Christ offer freedom to the oppressed. Secondly, we'll see Christ offers Disruption to sinful systems. Number two, disruption to sinful systems. We're going to read it now, Acts 16, 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. Now, if I was going to underline any phrase, it would be that last one. Their hope of gain was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. So let's think about what happened here. Looking at those verses we just read. What was the actual cause of the disturbance? Well, they were upset. They couldn't make money anymore because Paul cast out the moneymaker maker the little demon that was inside the girl, he cast it out that they were exploiting for profit, and she couldn't do it anymore. She couldn't do the fortune-telling anymore. The men say, Paul and Silas are here disturbing our city. But who disturbed the city? Who went and gathered the crowd? Who went and walked around and said, hey, we got a problem here? And they shook up the magistrates and brought everybody out into the street. Who did that? The upset men did. The slave owners did. So we need to recognize something. No matter what those men felt, Paul was right in the eyes of God. No matter what they said, even if their governmental system allowed for this sinful practice to take place, or they just simply, like we see today, turned a blind eye to the obvious sin and trafficking happening before us, we can say it was objectively right what Paul did because God's laws always override man's laws. The men can complain all they want about their lost business, but that doesn't make Paul wrong. And Paul and Silas shouldn't feel one ounce of pity for the lost business they caused those men because they shouldn't have had it in the beginning. This is a classic tactic employed in politics and the public square, especially in the media in recent years, I want to make you aware of. Often when a corruption or an evil is exposed and an outrage follows, we often see the one who exposed the evil come under more fire than the one who committed the evil. We see this all the time. I'll use a contemporary example that you might remember from a few years ago. There was an undercover investigation into Planned Parenthood which sought to learn what they did with the remains of their abortions. It's always been a, a subject of discussion as exactly what they do with the discarded body parts and tissue, whether they sell them for profit, at what cost, and to who. Project Veritas ran an undercover camera operation to get the answers to find out, and a lawsuit was filed, not against Planned Parenthood, but against Project Veritas for trespassing and using undercover tactics. So in the end, a horrible evil was done, but the one who got in the most trouble was the one who tried to expose and end the evil. This happens all the time in our day. In this story, we see Paul and Silas were getting into more trouble for freeing the girl from bondage than the men who actually enslaved and exploited her. That's what we call a corrupt, unjust system. You know how you know when you live in a corrupt system? When righteous people are more likely to get in trouble for righteousness' sake than criminals are for committing crimes. If a criminal breaks into your home in the night and your first thought is, how do I defend my family without getting a lawsuit, you may live in a corrupt system. The claim was, they're disturbing our city. But how? How were they disturbing the city? What proof was offered? Well, they they said, they advocate strange customs. First of all, is that against the law? But anyway, that's really rich coming from guys trafficking a demon-possessed girl for profit. Suddenly, they take the moral high ground. When you turn on the light and the cockroaches scatter, you don't blame the light for upsetting the cockroaches. Instead, you should be asking, why are there so many cockroaches around here? Essentially, the slave owners were upset. The gospel ruined their sinful lives, and they were upset at the godless chaos that ensued because they had been enjoying sin for personal gain. Sometimes, when the gospel goes into a new area, there will be a great celebration, and people will bow their knee to Jesus. But sometimes the demons will shriek and revolt and have the nerve to say that this revolt would never have happened if Christ would just stay inside the church walls from 1030 to 1130 a.m. on Sunday morning. Here's a thought for us Christians today. I want you to take this to heart. Everyone is good with Jesus until he starts flipping tables and saying before Abraham was, I am. Everybody is good with the idea of wolves. Wolves as long as they're in Yellowstone and not in my backyard. Everyone is good with Christians, in theory, until we start shaking up society and holding evil to account and acting like Christians in the world. So if you've been convinced, Christian, that we live in a pluralistic society and that we ought not impose our standards on other people because that's not what happens in a liberal democratic order, I want you to think about this little girl and ask, are you glad Paul imposed his Christian standards on those pagan slave owners? Are you glad for her sake, for justice and righteousness' sake? I'm glad they obeyed Christ, and I hope they would do it again. Aren't you glad that William Wilberforce imposed his Christianity on the British and ended the transatlantic slave trade? Aren't you? Aren't you glad William Carey and the Christian missionaries to India imposed their Christianity on them and stopped widows from having to jump on top of their husband's burning funeral fire? Aren't you glad that missionary Mary Slessor went to the tribal people of Nigeria and imposed her Christianity on them and stopped the practice of killing all twins and triplets that were born thinking that they were demons? Christianity is about preaching the gospel. Yes, that's true. But it's also about establishing righteousness and justice on the earth because Christ is reigning as king. You don't have to call drag queen story hour a blessing of liberty in a pluralistic society. You can call it what it is. Creepy groomer behavior and sinful before a holy God. Christ is Lord, not only of the church, but of the public library and the public school system. And I know that's true because he's king of kings and he's Lord of lords. I've come to a conclusion in my life That Jesus is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. So don't buy the lie that we are supposed to live our lives and set our light under a bushel. Darkness would love for light to hide. Those slave owners and Satan would love it if Paul and Silas stayed back in Jerusalem and played church. But to quote the kids song that you grew up with, hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. We just need to believe those lyrics. I would like to hope that in all the ruckus of the crowd, the little girl was grateful that Paul cast the demon out. I would like to hope that she was glad that someone risked disturbing the peace on her behalf. Jesus disturbed the peace for you, didn't he? He shook things up so you could be saved, didn't he? Guess what, Jesus was pretty comfortable in heaven. Surrounded by the heavenly host singing, holy, 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 but for you, he took on flesh and entered a manger stall and lived as a man in first century Nazareth and was hated by people and was called a criminal and was nailed to a cross. He disturbed the status quo when you were in bondage. Aren't you thankful that he did? You see, it's always easy to do absolutely nothing. I would say that's the easiest thing to do in the world is nothing. But you, Christian, are not called to nothing. You were called to that which Christ and the apostles did, and sometimes you will have to disturb the status quo, be a disruption to the sinful systems of this world. And I know that I'm glad that Christ did that for me. You might have to do it for somebody else. Christ freed us from oppression, disrupted sinful systems. Lastly, we see number three, that Christ offers, thirdly, substitution for our judgment. Substitution for our judgment. We're going to look at verses 22 through 24 and see what happens to Paul and Silas after they're dragged out into the middle of the street. It says this, the crowd joined in attacking them. So you can't say, oh, it was just the leaders. It was just the government. No, the people were in on it. The crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore the clothes off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received the order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Really fair system, right? So for their crimes, they are dragged into the marketplace, beaten by the crowd, officially beaten by the magistrates with rods, and then thrown into prison with their feet in stocks. Paul and Silas began this story On cloud nine. They had come from Asia Minor to Philippi. God gave them a vision, Macedonian call, come here. They followed the Lord. They went, and then they meet Lydia, started a small outpost of church planting, a house church in her home. They go out to preach, and boom, there's a demon-possessed girl standing there. Paul casts her out, and instantly they're beaten and mobbed and thrown into prison with their feet in stocks. No good deed goes unpunished. As I think about this last portion of the text, I really couldn't get the image of Christ being beaten by the Roman soldiers out of my mind. The scene after he's tried by Pilate when he is beaten. Now ultimately, Christ went to the cross after this. Paul and Silas went to prison. These are different events, so they're not the exact same. It's not one for one, but there are some similarities. There's a theology term if you know me, I, I love. I love to explain it to people. And I want to give it to you today as we close. It's called substitutionary atonement. One of my favorite theological terms, substitutionary atonement. When you're talking about this, this term, you should start with the word atonement, which means a payment, a covering. In theology, we mean our sins were atoned by the blood of Christ, meaning that they're, they're, the blood covers our sins there so that we would not have to bear our own sin debt we wouldn't have to bear our own sins at the judgment of god this runs through our faith in christ in in that there's a satisfaction of god's wrath the blood has appeased the wrath of god against our sin so our sins ultimately are not counted towards us in the courtroom of god's justice that's what that atonement means they got covered big blanket just covers it up god doesn't see it anymore that's atonement not to substitution a substitution is a trade When players sub out on the football field, one comes in the game, one leaves the game. So when Christ lived on the earth, he accrued and built up a perfect righteousness by the way he lived his life. That means Jesus never sinned. He pleased God perfectly. He did everything the right way all day long, every day. In thought or deed, he just did it right all the time. He accrued, he built up a perfect righteousness that would be required For anybody to get into heaven, Jesus is the only person who ever lived who could actually get into heaven on their good works alone. Think about that. Now, here's the cool part when we believe Christ by faith and repent of our sin, not only do our sins get covered, atoned for, but a substitution is made in the halls of heaven where your sin record is traded for Christ's righteousness record. Your D-minus report card gets traded for Christ's A-plus report card. And that is how when God looks at you, he sees your sins are covered by the blood of Christ, and he sees the life of his son superimposed over you. That is substitutionary atonement. Think about this story in front of us. A young girl shackled by demonic influences, oppressed by men, In an instant, Paul frees her in the power of Christ. She's no longer enslaved, no longer bound to her masters. She is free. But in a trade, Paul and Silas are taken, tried, beaten, shackled, and imprisoned. They received the punishment of a sinner, though they did nothing wrong. In fact, they did something right. And the one that was in bondage got to walk away free. Friends, that's your salvation in a nutshell. You were bound and shackled by your sin and had a death sentence, but Jesus stepped in and took your place and set you free. He wiped away your record of sin and gave you the righteousness of his son. He brings you into his family, puts a nice set of clothes on you, calls you son and daughter. He brings you into fellowship. He gives you the Holy Spirit. He gives you abundant life. He gives you a new nature. And he took the rods and the nails and the spears that you didn't have to take in your place. God allows the bound to go free because the one who was free became bound for you. The beauty of this reality is the same that we'll see next week. Paul and Silas are not going to remain bound. And Jesus, listen, taking your punishment, did not remain bound either. Rather, death was a momentary affliction for the author of life, and he is worthy of your worship today because of that. So if you're in bondage today, I want you to know there is a chain breaker named Jesus Christ He is willing to shake up everything for you. He's willing to take the punishment for you. He's here to set you free from the penalty of your sin that you owed. So don't walk away in bondage today when you could walk away free. Let's pray.